Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Life doesn't always give you the best choices, but knowing what to try and being willing to fail can lead to the most valuable lessons. That's how Bill Woodich translated his early frustrations in sales into running a $100 million company while building a career as a speaker and writer, including his new book, Fail More. In this episode of Hack the Process, Bill tells us how he optimizes his work and his life around freedom of choice, what knowing his own limitations showed him about how to structure his business, and why he believes his greatest mentors came to him through reading ancient philosophy. I'm speaking today with Bill Woodich, and he is the best-selling author of Always Forward and the author of a new book called Fail More. Bill, how are you doing today? Greg, it's a pleasure to virtually meet you. Good to meet you, too. So I've been hearing about Fail More. I've been reading some of the previews. I uh, haven't had a chance to read the book itself yet, but I'm curious about what's the concept? What are you trying to get across in this new book? You know, if you walk through an airport, and I think you travel, you, you travel as well, and you walk through the airports, and you look at the books in the, in the airport, and everything has a an umbrella about success, you know, choose this, you can do anything, all the motivational hype, but not really a whole lot of the how-to when you get the inevitable bumps and bruises of failure. So I want to come out with a book that's almost a contrarian's perspective and something that's indispensable if you're looking for and seeking success, and that's failure. So I thought, what about fail more? Because you know this, you, you had to have done it in your career, and you'll do it as you progress. You've got to fail to succeed. It's what you learn from the failure that you can apply to make success in the endeavor. And choosing good challenges so that you can learn from them as well, I think. Great point. Because if people get stuck choosing something that they don't have the aptitude to do. And I know for me, if I wanted to be a mechanic, I'd fail miserably. No matter how much I tried, I'd keep failing and failing. So you've got to have the right environment, the right milieu for you to grow. You have to have the aptitude and you've got to put in the work. Choice is huge. And if that's not working, choose to do something different. It's hard to know early on whether something is the right thing to fail at. And it's, it's a difficult thing for some people to choose, I think. It is difficult. And part of that's just immersion. Immersion into the process of what it is that you're actually doing. And the other one is going to be sound metaphysical. But I mean, it's, it's, it's introspection and knowing yourself. My aptitude is not mathematical. So I always point to myself in the book and a guy named Jack Ma, who happens to be worth about $48 billion. That's a B. And he was abysmal in math. He couldn't get it. He couldn't get a job at KFC. And there was, you know, 29 applicants. Couldn't get a job in the police force. There was only four positions. He was the fifth applicant. They said, you're just no good. But his problem, his downfall was math. So I know if I'm going to put myself in a position to fail in something that would require math skills, I might as well not even try. And I, I like that because a lot of people think about fail more. They hear a title like that and they immediately think, oh, well, there are so many things I could fail at because there are so many things I know that I'm bad at. But that actually helps them focus their thinking about the things where they could fail profitably. Yeah, and, and I really broke it down like a euphemism for try more. It's just it had a little more, a little more oomph to it because fail more is not a license to just go out and act, you know, with, 
in his wanton type behavior that just as a class clown, but later on in life, it's really a forum to learn from, to take and dissect. What is it I could have done differently? What is it that's causing the fear in the first place? What's the source? How do I break out that source? Understand what it is with my, with my reason and then move forward. Or as you said, make another choice and withdraw. Now, this book, I think some of the ideas in this grew out of your first book, Always Forward. I'm curious how you decided that it was time that you needed to write another book around this topic. Okay. I'm going to give you the unvarnished truth on this. The first book, Always Forward, was one of those progressive, I want to change the world, give them a platform to learn from based on my cumulative experience in sales over 25 years. I want to condense it. I want to really give you the steps to succeed, become incredible in sales. And I did it. And I had a manager out of New York. He was working with me at the time and got me on the Steve Harvey show for a number of times and different television shows across the nation. And he said, you know, your next book, it's going to be called Fail More. He, gave, he actually gave me the title. So there's, I said, what? He said, it's always forward turned inside out. Before you could become that guy who became this guy who runs a $100 million company, you had to fail. I want to know how you failed. I want people to have a way, not just a mantra of motivation. But I want you to show them the steps, how to dispassionately pull apart failure and learn from it. And I went, oh, man, it's a heavy lift. But then I fell in love with it. So, so in this book, do you go into your own history? Is it autobiographical in terms of your failures? McGraw-Hill was the publisher. They slapped me around because they didn't want it to be an autobiography. So they, <laughs> they, they brought enough of my history where I start and fail. And I was in a factory in Western Pennsylvania, and I foreclosed my future. I just... You know, wanted to hang out and smoke and drink with my friends and didn't want to go to school. Didn't want to do anything. Just wanted to go work in that factory for a while. Just enough to make enough money to go to a you know, local hangout. And that scared me straight. And without that, I would have never taken my first step out of those backwoods. And then taking those steps, I had to learn to face rejection for the first time with a real heart slap in corporate America. So I didn't have any clue what success was. And I'll tell you one thing. This is kind of, this is the most, this started everything. I didn't have a prescription for success, but I pulled this ruler out of the desk. I was at Liberty Mutual, first job in a bullpen, six inches. The, the predecessor had been fired. And on the ruler, it said, activity rules success. And I thought, if that's the prescription, then I'm going to have a lot of activity. Through learning from failure, I learned how to direct the activity towards something that would bring me more success. When I coupled that volume of activity with the knowledge of what works and what doesn't work, I became the top salesperson in Liberty Mutual. That's interesting because it sounds like when you started off with this, you had a lifestyle. It was a lifestyle a lot of people are familiar with where you're working in a factory, you're probably earning sustainable wages, you're able to survive, but it's not fulfilling. It's not meeting your ambitions. And then you decided to move into something that you were very unfamiliar with, where it was quite possible that you were going to fail. And I was living with my parents, so that was that was not part of my master plan. <laughs> That's what I was doing. And, you know, you've got to be able to align your ambitions with your aptitude, with your talent, with your drive. So because blind ambition is just you're not going to learn from it. You have ambition, but you're not making the steps to go out and do something with it. And from my parents' couch and from that bedroom, I had fear. And I believe every one of your listeners has to stay in touch with that primary fear. What's that biggest motivating fear? Most people don't know what they want but they always know what they fear. When you have clarity of goal, and when you have that fear right there present, and my fear was I'd always end up being taken care of by them. I'd have to look at every price on every grocery item. 
I wanted lifestyle options. I wanted freedom. And if I was going to have freedom, I had to face fear. I had to face rejection and I had to learn from failure. That was the requisite. That was it. For a lot of people, I think that fear would be living on their parents' sofa, not, not seeing where they were going to go next. It's interesting that you turned to sales as the place where you started. What was it that directed you towards sales in the first place? You know what? It, it turned to me. And I'll and I tell you how it turned to me. I had an ego that was hard to fit into a room when I graduated from Penn State with my master's. I thought, you know, I've got a business degree. Somebody owes me a living, a job, probably a corner office, but I never, I never worked in corporate America. So I had no money. And I went to a recruiter and they said, you know, you're, you're never going to make it in sales. And I don't know where we can put you because you don't want to be a salesperson. Well, someone felt sorry for me. And this lady was in Richmond. And she said, the only place you're going to start is sales. And you're going to start with Liberty Mutual. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. This is selling and it's insurance. And those two together are just make me almost nauseous. I don't want to do that. But forced choice. It was either that or back to my parents' couch. So I got into sales and I did it different. I didn't think of it as selling. Thought of it as an enrollment, engagement, heart to heart, you know, win the heart first and then the mind. And, and it just took off when I started to learn again from, from the lessons of faith. So you started off, though, with a master's in business, which is not a bad place to start. Not a lot of people get to start there. What put you in that direction in the first place? What made you think of business as a, as a direction you might take yourself? You know, for me, it was high, to me, and I, I think it's been a lot of people that are on, you see in social media that would say the value of a college education has been, it's virtually, it's not worthless, but it's not worth what it once was, if it ever was worth something, whatever that number that is, you know, and that's college debt, a lot of things that bring that on. I thought that the way forward was through education. I thought the way forward was, was to keep learning and better myself. And I was a C student in school at Bastard High School, never applied myself. So my, my biggest fear, the intimate fear that I had was that I would apply myself. And I would be less than and I would fail myself, meaning that, geez, do I really want to put it out there and then just fall and fail? What would happen then? My ego, my self-esteem, everything would fall with it. But I knew that I had to do that if I was going to move forward. And education was the way. So I was able through student loans and, and relatively good grades to keep going with education. So that was my launching point. And I think you've pointed it out, and I recognize that I have an MBA myself. I don't really apply it a lot in my work, although it's kind of in the background, kind of gave me a way of thinking. But I, I work with so many people who are excellent professionals who do not have degrees that have anything to do with the work that they're doing these days. Oh, yeah. You know, I found people ask me, what, what did you take from your degrees? What did you take from that? I said one thing in business. Prior planning prevents piss poor performance. I learned that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the one thing because... I always tell the people in our company, and we have a, a number of producers we train and mentor, I say that no plan you have is going to survive the first contact with that client in his boardroom. It's just not. Strategy must be fluid. It doesn't. It's not exported from the classroom as theory into the boardroom as practice, not without a whole lot of bumps, a whole lot of rejection, and a whole lot of iteration changes. It just won't do it. Be flexible. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. And it's actually one of the challenges, I think, of writing a book, because once you've written a book, you've crystallized in a moment in time, you're thinking about a subject, but it's going to change over time. Um, great word. It, it crystallizes. And if you stay crystallized, that means you're, you're going to fear those two things you have to do in life to move forward. Kahneman and Tversky first wrote about loss and change. And they say, you know, the people, they breaks down in humans and Two spheres. You have the fear of loss. You don't want to give something up, get something less than. You have your loss averse, and you have the fear of change. 
but you've got to be, you've got to change. If you have crystallized thought, you're going to atrophy, you're going to become obsolete, senescence occurs, and you die as a company, you die as a person. That's why to evolve means the next challenge, that next level is going to be there. Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to face those fears? Get to a whole new plateau if you want to be more, become more, do more, or you don't and say, you know, I'm good enough. Ah, it's the death knell. Death knell of a company is the death knell of an achievement. Now, a lot of this gets beyond the practicality of, of what you apply in your life. It gets down to the spiritual level, as you said at the very beginning. And I'd love to find out more about where your spiritual side came from and how you developed this knowledge, this understanding. Uh, you know, and I love that you, you're broaching into this spiritual subject because I'm very spiritual and I have a belief in the universe and that no matter what someone believes in, as long as it's a higher purpose directed toward good, and I'm going to be their champion. For me, it was reading Greek philosophy. It was reading Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. And it was trying to synthesize the teaching of the great, the great minds and think, what is it that I can own? What is it that I really can resonate with? Not all, because not all thoughts are going to be something you can resonate with and not something you can get behind. But I thought, wow, this transcends business, but it really is the business of life. And that's all this is. You know, it's not, there's no two spheres of business and life. It's all life. So I studied the philosophy. The first one, I, Plato at the Oracle of Delphi, know thyself. I think it was Socrates, know thyself. And then be able to apply and be true to yourself. So that's why I can say I would be terrible in anything outside of math. I'd probably be terrible in anything outside of, you know, sales now. But I learned where my truth strengths were, who I was by looking inside and believing in the common and a greater good for all based on abundance, not scarcity. Just I just never came from that place. <laughs> did you turn to teachers around that or did you do a lot of self-study? A lot of self-study. I had some great mentors, some great teachers who would show me maybe light up a path, but then it's up to the student. You know, what's the great saying that if the, if the student's ready, the teacher will appear? Well, I was ready. And they can show you a path but you're the one that has to traverse the path. You're the one that has to be on the lookout. You're the one that has to keep, take, or disregard what it is that can help you elevate on another spiritual level. I'm a huge believer in that, and I, I believe in that magic of the universe, not in a poo-poo way. And I think we have to take personal responsibility for what we do, our actions, our results. But there is something to be said about that way and that mindset. This really is. Yeah, and absolutely. And if you're open-minded, those teachers will appear. And you brought up the word mentorship. I'm curious about the mentors that you've had over the years. Who was it who helped guide you into the work that you're doing? You know, I'm going to throw a curveball to you in this way, that some of my mentors were, were real in terms of mentors that I had as professors or mentors I had at the first, my first places of business where they would tell me, you know, you bring this thought and then action into play, that there's no, there's no real time lag between what you think and what you do. And that became the basis of my first book. When you, when you can think and then do with speed, you're going to overcome most who don't and won't. Because most people procrastinate. They fear they don't want to, they don't want to fear that loss of doing something. They're just good enough. They're in comfort. They're crystallized their thoughts to be comfortable. You know, they've done enough. So I was, I married that thought and action and the rest I got from reading. My, a lot of my mentors from Churchill to Marcus Aurelius are invisible, but those thoughts, oh, I mean, they're durable and they live on as a way of life. We were fortunate enough, 25 years I've had the Woodage group and that group earned, earned a phrase that's called the Woodage way. It's just a way of doing business. 
based on professional decorum, care for another human across the desk or next to you, a non-selling way of selling through enrollment, not gimmick, and something that was very important in business, that if you didn't think you, you, you get a benefit from this product, then you don't have to pay us for it. We had a money-back guarantee, and not a lot of companies in insurance were doing that. No, I don't think I've heard of companies in insurance doing money-back guarantees. Yeah, you're, you're probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned the the term enrollment, and I've heard people in sales use the term enrollment before. I'm curious if you could break that one down for us. Well, I think that start with mindset. If you have a mindset that I'm going to sell somebody, say I'm going to sell you, I sit across the table, I think that you feel that. I think that I'm looking at your wallet, not literally, but figuratively, I'm looking at your wallet. Enrollment means you're looking at the heart. You don't look at the wallet. You don't count your money. You're not looking at how big the sale is and change your activity, change your action, change your course. No, no, no. It's a process. It's that courtship in the old days. It's courtship. So I want to get to know you as a person. And I'm going to, right up front, I'm going to say, you know what? This is what we're not. So I'm bringing a little cognitive dissonance to the table, telling you what we're not. I'm going to show you our warts and flaws before some competitor comes out and tells you anyway. I'm going to tell you what we can do. But most important, I'm going to show you then. But if this is right for you, don't know if it is, or this is going to be a good match. It will evolve over time. I want to enroll you to come to me because you want to, because you perceive something that could benefit you, not because I have something that forces you into a corner. Don't want to do it that way. So it's definitely not about the quick close. It sounds like it's a very slow and engaging process where you really pre-qualify the people that you're going to be working with. Experientially, yes. Experientially, I've learned this, that the quicker the close on most things, the shorter the window, that they'll leave you the same way to, to the next competitor with a dollar lower. Sometimes the longer the burn, when you get to know yourself, that tail of the curve can be extended. You tend to keep those clients for 10, 12 years because you've got a solid foundation. But I found that you'll basically lose the client the same way you got them. And if it's on the dollar and it's fast, generally the next person with a lower dollar or, I mean, something that's prettier and shinier, you'll lose. It's just what I found through experience. And that's the sort of thing that you can only learn through experience. And it, it gives you a very different way of looking at those quarterly results that companies keep on chasing. And see, there we go. Because that was part of film. That was part of me learning that, wait a minute, I'm getting a lot of these, you know, pretty quickly. Let's try this because this isn't working. I'm out there trying to sell people on concepts and brochures, and I'm not meeting them as a person. So, you know what? I, I lost my first 13 sales attempts. Now, remember, now I'm out of school. I have an oxidized station wagon my parents gave me with, with no hubcaps. I can't tie a tie. My brother used to cinch that tie for me in the morning because he took me into his apartment, a, a, a one bedroom with, that we put two twins in there, right? Or two small beds. And, and a corduroy suit that I wore every day. And I would park that car and get out and try to sell people on what I was trained. And I wasn't meeting people as people. I was meeting them as a concept. When I would ask, where are you from? What do you do? But just a general conversation without trying to sell. I was enrolling. And then I started climbing up that leaderboard. And I kept doing enough activity, thinking and doing all the way to the top. That took you from Liberty Mutual to starting your own business? Yeah, it took me from Liberty Mutual to I was recruited by the fourth largest broker in the world. And after two years, I tried to put my ego in my pocket on these things because it's not about that. I had some great support, some great leadership, and I became the top person in that company. At that time, I wanted to know how good I really was. And I didn't want the corporate, you know, I didn't want that corporate logo to dictate my success. I wanted to see if I was good enough, if I could take the net down, be that entrepreneur and go across there and make it. And I did. 
one step at a time it wasn't easy. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But uh, one step at a time with some really good people around me worked. It's interesting because a lot of people go for an entrepreneurship approach rather than an entrepreneurship approach, building themselves up within a company. What was it that made you feel like you wanted to do it outside of the organizational structure you were already in? It's a great question. And uh, I'm a big believer in the intrapreneur program that we have developed in our company where we're growing people and letting them, setting them up as if it was their own business. It, it totally let them run those subunits uh, as an intrapreneur. The choice to become an entrepreneur was something that was more visceral and something that had to do with, do I really want to leave the field of play and never find out if I was good enough to do this on my own? And I couldn't put that one to bed. I just couldn't put it to bed. It was something in me and I had to see. So that's what I did. It's a very big step. And usually you have to start with investors and maybe take some clients with you. I'm not sure. How, how did you go about it? What was the process like? Because this is about hacking your process, you know? <laughs> my choice was investors. And my choice was to have four solid, solid investors. They were all in the business. So they were, I was dealing with the construction business. They were my clients. So I wanted construction clients that were huge, that, had, that fed a lot of my income. And I ended up with just one. The biggest one said, I don't want other investors. And I had a number of investors that were lining up to fund it. He said, I'm going to be the only one, the sole one. And he made an investment in us of $175,000. That was it, right? And he made me match it. Seven years later, I cut a check to him for $795,000. So I owed the company outright. So it was an investment that paid off for him, it paid off for us. And the investors in our company now are the stockholders are people who are the million dollar producers who I've granted stock to, they've earned it through production. That's how I started. That was hacking the process. It was investors. There was, there was no way beyond that. No, that makes perfect sense. And a lot of people leverage investors in order to build up those relationships, try to find the companies who have the relationships they want and get them to invest. And it sounds like this was the company with the best relationship for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did my due diligence on that. And I was very careful with that. And I want to make sure because of reputation and what he had done for me that we paid off everything got out clear. And I think that, you know, he was he was blown away by how fast we paid off that amount. Plus, it was a pretty good investment for him. I think. I'm curious how you presented the package to, to your investor to make it a more compelling package for them. Make, it makes sense to them why they would want to start a business with you or help you start a business in order to support what they were trying to do. The end part is very important. What's in it for them? You start everything not burying your lead. And if you can take a business plan and it looks like something that everybody else has put together, it's not going to fly very far. Not with the savvy investor. What is in it for them? What is the guarantee? What's the, what is the worst case scenario if they invest? What do they lose? How are you going to protect that worst case? So those are things that I brought to the table. Here's your worst case. Here's your investment. This is what could happen. Now, here's our growth plan. Here's how we're going to do it. And fortunately for me, I had people who had experience with me and the group of people who were coming with me to start the company. So there was already an advantage in the experience. And that's part of hacking the process. They had been exposed to the type of service. They've been exposed to me for a number of years. They knew that they probably had a pretty good back. And now that's another thing that makes your experience distinct in that you brought people with you and you didn't try to start as a solopreneur. A lot of people do go off as a solopreneur, but it sounds like you had different ideas in mind. Let's go back to the Oracle of Delphi and Socrates, know thyself. I knew my weaknesses and they're myriad. So what I would do is to hire people much smarter than me who did 
certain things much better than me and let them perform. I'll tell you what it cost me. Life's a trade-off. It costs some stock. It costs money. So instead of me sitting there trying to do everything, I had other people specialists doing things. So maybe we didn't make as much at the, at the end of the year. But over time, that three to five year period, we started to become more of a windfall and everything turned out to be extremely profitable. But I'm going to surround myself with people who know much more than me and I'm going to give them the autonomy to fail, to learn. I want an environment that is free from fear. It's the only way you can grow is free from the tentacles of fear. Well, starting with a CEO who has a strong enrolled relationship with a, with a primary client is a great place to start. What were the skill sets that you needed to bring around with you in order to create this? Anything to do with numbers. So I had to bring people who actually could dive into the nuances of the insurance contract, who could understand the law, the attorneys, the people that could actually dissect and understand what that contract that I was selling and promising would do. And I did that before I ever try to enroll someone. So I would bring those people with me. So they, from their mouths, they could tell that client, this is what you're buying with clarity. So everyone knew what that was. Specialists that did things on, on the claims end, because, you know, that's what we're in it for. We're in it for, for the claims experience. And then my job is to negotiate. So my job is to get the lowest possible point of price, the lowest possible cost, understanding that price is part of it, coverages we would do were part of it. Now, all those things that go, would go into it, I would be the one in New York that was finalizing negotiation. It worked in that symbiotic symmetry that just, which is beautiful. And of course, you also had to enroll all of those people to come with you as well. That, there you go. In a company as the CEO, you have two types. You have your stockholders, your shareholders. That's, that's the clients you have. You also have the external clients who pay your bills. But then you have the internal clients, the ones that go out and generate that activity that gets those clients. So you've got a number of clients that you're serving and every day you enroll them. And I'll tell you what I learned. I learned this as CEO. People will judge you, it's a harsh word. People will, will judge you based not on what you accomplish, but on what you tolerate. You've got to be very consistent in your standards. You've got to hold that high bar and you've got to be able to reach it yourself every day because people are assessing and measuring you every day. That's true. Just in order to start working with you, they have to have already seen that you have that high bar. Yeah, and they learn that because before people will come to me, it's the same thing as I would tell my clients. Don't believe what I tell you. Because everybody's going to say the same thing. We're trying to get something. This is what we're trying to get. But ask my clients. Ask those insurance companies. Ask those people on the street who ex who've experienced us. And I'll give you everything. If you do that, you'll come to work here. But if you want to work. Because it is a high bar of expectation in, in terms of what we're looking for in people. And it's a fast pace. We're known for it, but the rewards are great. And it's the same with, with a client. This is who we are. This is what we are. Know everything. Here's our dirty laundry. I'm hugely run on transparency. So along the way, you also branched out into writing and speaking and even podcasting. I think a podcast network at one point. Unstoppables. <laughs> yes. Tell me a little bit about how that got started. You know, I always had a passion for speaking. I just, it was something I always wanted to do. I thought that I'm better in front of a group of a thousand than I am one-on-one -on -one sometimes. I just, I'm, I become almost this passionate, I have this passionate fervor for getting up on stage and trying to compel people to, to make a better way for themselves, to enrich their lifestyle options. To, I, I get all fired up from stuff like that. So companies that we had, we served across the nation would, 
say to me, you know what, you're you're really good in this stuff on sales. Could you talk to my sales groups? Sure. Your company does service really well. Could you kind of marry the service and the sales with our groups? Got invited to do the uh, Boy Scouts of America talk. It was for the leaders, 800 people, mentors, Boy Scout leaders in Palm Springs. I just got, they just started calling me on stuff like that. And then I found my love for the stage. And writing was always something that's inside of me. I, I love to write. It's creativity for me. Right. And I guess getting positive feedback from clients you're working with is a great way to start in a field like that. You know, I, I got to tell you, if you use their words, you, you can find a whole lot of you can find a lot of motivation behind what people are saying to you in terms of providing it for people. Let's say I was I was talking with you and I would take notes on what you tell me. And I come back, I write you a real quick little letter, quick little email. And I would use, you know, as we agreed, bam, there's your quote in words. And, and, you know, and that's part of the enrollment process of how we're getting to know each other is I'm listening to you, not just hearing you, but I'm listening to you. And I'm taking your words then that you would say about us if we performed, wouldn't ask you, never ask for one testimony and then put it in front of another client and say, you know, he had doubts too. He took the first step and here we are, stuff like that. That's a testimonial from the person's own mind, basically. Yes. And you can't, you won't argue with yourself. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I've got lots of opinions, <laughs> but I can see where that would be. You know, that that's very compelling. It gets into the way that the person is thinking and using their own language, using their own words. It encourages them to feel like you're on the same wavelength, or at least that they've been understood. As close as you can to that wavelength, exactly. And being understood is, you know, that that's paramount because what we think, how we think people understand us, is probably sometimes inimical to how they actually do understand us. So I'm always going to ask people, what did I say? If I really want clarity, what did I say? What did you get from it? And we're going to keep working towards something that's as close as we can get to an approximation of what it is that I really want them to understand. You know, it's a process. I'm really curious how you can structure your time around all of these things that you're doing, because being the CEO of a company while writing books, while doing speaking, while running a network of podcasts, that's a lot to keep track of. Yes. And I'm going to say this. You mentioned the word structure, and I'm smiling because although I think I have a structure, it's really controlled anarchy, and I have a lot of energy. I have some great assistants who will set up things for me, and my structure evolves around priorities. So certain times my priorities will switch, and to write the book, because I had such great management and leadership extant in the company beyond me, I could move away. And I could really immerse myself in the writing and the creativity, knowing that the minutiae of insurance, of the whole process of insurance was being taken care of by people in the other company. That, that's part of it is where your priorities are. That's where you're going to shift your structure. Or you're just going to run around like a crazy person and you're going to become ineffective in all things instead of effective in one thing. It sounds like part of the secret to that is knowing how to delegate, which comes from knowing your limitations and being able to recognize that you can bring somebody else in, have them fill those needs, and getting to the point that you're confident in that. That was one, two, and three. You did perfect on that. You have to recap, <laughs> capture that. Being able to understand that this is not something that I can do effectively, and you have to be able to assess that. Being able to delegate that, delegate that, and then follow up on the delegation and empower those people. Empower those people who deserve to be empowered to just let them go. It's a hard place for people to get to, and it sounds like by starting off as a company with other people rather than starting off alone, you started off immediately thinking about how you can leverage the skills of multiple people in order to take advantage of that. Let me give you a real quick story. 
I, I always tell people that you can put your hand on the stove and know that it's hot and get burned and then learn from that. Or you can look and say, that's a stove. I don't want to put my hand on. So I learned, I learned this way. I took a vacation to Australia in the first five, six years of the company. And I demanded, this is the time where faxes. I demanded that every fax of what happened during the day came across that, that machine in the morning. So from my hotel overlooking the Sydney Opera House, I could read that stuff. The thing is, it didn't matter because the day had already transpired. So I had to learn that my illusion of control was just that. It was an illusion. And all I was doing was tethering myself to the wheel. And I'd always have to be pulling on that if I was going to be that solo act that demanded everything come through this brain. So what I did was go back, break the company up and say, look, do you want to do this and this? If you do, you have stock options, you have more income, but I demand this, freedom. When I'm away, when I'm doing this, when I'm writing books, I don't want to be called, no, they'll absolutely call me if it's something important. I don't want to be bought on this stuff. I want you to do it. And it, that was a tough one for me because I'm a control freak. But once I learned control was an illusion, you only can contain an influence. You can't really control. We, we can parse on this and, and we can play semantics with this. It'll bring you, control will bring you to an early grave. It's an illusion. You influence, you don't really control. I think that's something that you kind of have to learn in the process of writing a book too, because at some point you have to let go of it. It's never going to be perfect. That was the hardest part for me. It took... Eight to nine months before the nine months before the baby was born with always forward, and I mean, it was tough for me to condense it, to cut it. The editor was crazy. It took about three to three and a half months to write film. I learned, I hacked the process. I learned what was important, what wasn't important. I learned what to cut out. I had learned from all that experience of writing the first one and how painful that process was to actually enjoy writing film. That's interesting. How did your process change from the first book to the second? I, you know, I thought, here's not number one thing I'm doing. I'm not making it enough about the audience. I'm going to make it more about them because I was writing all this stuff about me, me, me. And it was about 75,000 words that they quickly cut down to about 38,000. <laughs> okay. Because I had to shift the whole paradigm from, but they want to hear about me because it's part of the lesson. No, 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 no. How can I give you the lesson? So I learned to put how-tos in Fillmore. Here's how you do this, not just go out and do this. So I really learned that part. And then I learned what the editor would look for. And, and I, I just knew from the first time through that they were going to cut this out. They were going to keep this part. And I learned not to argue with them. If it was a point that I, a hill I didn't want to die on, that wasn't worth dying on, give it up because they're going to win anyway. They're paying you to write the book. They're going to win. It's interesting. So in working with the editor, you experienced a lot of mini failures with the first book by seeing everything that you wrote that got cut. Every day. Boom, boom. And that's part of learning about rejection and being inured or hardened to rejection is exposure to it. If you really want something bad enough, you won't get your butt kicked. It's going to hurt. It's going to sting. But the more you're exposed to it, the more you learn it's not killing me. You know, this is not this is not hurting me physically. You know, here I go. I can just keep doing this. And I'm, the more I'm exposed to it, now I'm not just pounding my head against the wall. I'm actually taking something from that lesson. Before, it was just the bruise. And I'd want to either strike back or put salve on the bruise. But then you start learning, where did that bruise come from? How can I dodge it in the future? And if I get hit, you know, what do I do at that point? It's a whole whole different mindset than your first reaction. It sounds a lot like the martial arts. <laughs> Physical emotional, intellectual, it's all part of it. So how does this translate to a lifestyle for yourself in, in that you, as I said, you still have to 
live and do all of the things a human being has to do while getting all of this done. What does your What does your structure of your day look like? Well, I love I love work. So I, I define work as something that's creative for me. So it doesn't have that onerous feeling that I'm yoked to something from eight nine to five. My freedom to do what I want to do in the context of work or in the context of play is totally up to me. So I had the freedom of choice. And you, you mentioned choice very early in the interview. And that freedom to choose is something that I had to pay for. I had to pay for it emotionally. I had to pay for it financially. I had to pay for it physically because I worked to put myself in a position where lifestyle options and freedom of choice were something that I could then enjoy because I, I couldn't always do that. So I have the freedom to do what I choose to do, what's important when I want to do it without the other elements in the company's suffering. And it sounds like what you've done is you've optimized your life around that because that is what you value. Yes. And you'll, you know, great word. What do you value? What are your values and what do you value? Because if you work around what you value, you'll find you're able to put your time spaces in the right places. You're moving more and more into writing these days. You've got a couple of books out now. You're doing more speaking. Is this something about the direction that you're thinking about taking your career in next? That's right. Yeah. I'm always thinking about next. And I think that's all part of achievement is I'm looking forward. I always say in life, you, you play it forward. You know, before pay it forward became famous, I always want to play it forward. How do, where do I see myself and how do I get there? Who can help me get there? Who are my allies? Who are my determined advocates? What's next? So next for me is more stage because I can affect much more, I can affect many more hearts and minds just by doing that. And more books because I find that's where my true value in terms of time spent is found in that doing that and creating that and having those phone calls and those letters and those emails coming from across the country, people saying, man, I really got this out of it, really changed my life this way, did this. That's a bounce that, that it's hard to explain unless you really can feel it. It's a great bounce, great bounce of joy. Now, I can imagine the people who've read your books and who've seen you on stage also approach you for coaching. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite things to do. I, I think that if, if I could say there'd be one thing I'd like to do is to really continue to coach and mentor. And I, I think that's the same thing. And mentorship to me is the most valuable thing you can do. I like to cultivate those young minds and I like to show them a way, teach them maybe a different way of thinking. And I'm very Socratic in the way I ask questions. I don't tell them what to do. I could suggest strongly on certain things, but I want them to find the answers. And so I'm asking the questions. By asking the questions, if they're willing to do the work, if they're willing to face their fears, if they're willing to fail and learn from failure, you can generally have a pretty good product. And then when that product is released, you've got someone that may want to be an entrepreneur, that maybe was an entrepreneur, but he's changing his family's lifestyle. He's doing better schools. He's doing better things for his family because he learned those lessons early on. I think those formative mentors will stay with you for the rest of life. That has to be so gratifying to be able to see that play out in somebody's life. You know, I want to give you one, because you mentioned this and it's been in the back of my mind. You said, who are some of the mentors that really affected life? When I was an undergrad at Purdue, I wanted to go to law school. And I had gone to, there's the, the head of the public administration department, the head of political science, was a scintillatingly brilliant man. He was so intimidating in his brilliance, that you almost didn't want to get near that sun because you'd fear your wings would burn off. You didn't want to get near him. But I went up there and asked him, and I, I said, would you think about doing something for me as a favor? And I, you know, Dr. and Dr. McClure, and he said, what is, push his glasses back. And I said, 
like for you to let, write a letter for law school. And he said, okay, can I ask which university you choose to attend? And I said, something mid-tier or low? He said, what? He said, you have the ability to go to these schools. And he started mentioning some of the very elite universities. I didn't believe in myself. And I said, no, you don't know where I'm from. He said, son, I don't know where you're from, but I know where you can go. And that's the key to my mentoring is that a lot of people who come to me have no clue of where they can go. They only know where they're from. And they've crystallized that into a, almost a, a, a prison of their own thought. My job is to break those chains. They're the ones that have to walk out of that self-imposed prison. And that's what I do. Well, I think a lot of my listeners would love to break out of their sense of where they are right now and realize where they have potential to go. Where can I point them to find out more about you and your work and your writings? Bill Woodich at Bill Woodich, and that's W-O-O-D-I-T-C-H or BillWoodich.com. And you can see me running around on stage. You can find the books. You can do the downloads on it. So I actually have my voice when I did those. But, but BillWoodich.com or at Bill Woodich, and it's W-O-O-D-I-T-C-H. Fantastic. Bill, the author of Failmore, thank you so much for joining me on Hack the Process and sharing all that. You know, I loved speaking with you. I thought you were a very insightful, intellectual interview, and you brought out some great points. So I hope everyone benefits from that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Take care. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.